Hi, this is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at WisdomTree. This is Li Chen Ren, Director of Modern Alpha Wisdom Tree ETFs. Welcome to China of Tomorrow podcast, where we discuss the businesses, economic and financial markets in China and Asia. We're going to be talking with Chase Taylor here on October 15th, Friday afternoon, about uh, a lot of his views. I've been a subscriber to Chase's Pinecone macro research, a lot of very interesting stuff. Uh, so Chase, thanks for joining us for a discussion here on, on China of Tomorrow podcast. Yeah, it's, it's a great pleasure. I appreciate you guys having me. So I, I want to start top down. Uh, you do a lot of macro work, but one of the things you've been focused on is some of the energy markets, uh, natural gas and others. And there's a lot going on with that worldview. Um, but maybe we could start with your very highest level, how you see the energy markets which have been on fire this year uh, and, and how you see it going into the end of the year into next year. Yeah, it's, it's definitely been on fire. Um, it's really interesting. I think, I, I think you know, oil is going to be in, in really good shape for probably years to come. Uh, natural gas gets tricky. Same, same with coal. With really, really revolves around weather. Uh, if we get, you know, it's kind of become obvious to a lot of people recently, but it wasn't until recently that if we have a cold winter, there's going to be nasty issues, especially in Europe and Asia. And if that if that were to happen, then you could have we've already kind of had a super spike in in natural gas Europe, but I think that could kind of feed through. It could be even worse. You could start seeing higher prices in the United States, uh, the rest of the world. Uh, but if we do get a you know if we were to have a mild winter, then you could you could get kind of a break from this, and a lot of those crazy prices we're seeing right now can kind of back away. Um, and then you know we even have coal, which there's major shortages of coal kind of globally right now. So that that's another problem area. So in, in terms of how you think about building portfolios, getting exposure, is the, the, the case, I guess you differentiate on oil versus natural gas. Why is, why is the, for the people uninformed, not as close to the economy as you, why, what's sort of the differential between oil versus natural gas there on, on those two views? Yeah, so the, the, the biggest one to me, it, it's just kind of weather. I, that's not really going to matter as much for oil. In fact, if we get, uh, it, it's just not going to pay as much attention, but uh, on, the, on the gas side, it's, it's extremely weather dependent and it, you know, the way we kind of store it is, you know, you put it away for the winter and then you draw it down in the winter. And if you don't store enough in the winter, it can be really bad, even with kind of a regular winter. But if you have a bad one with low storage, the way we have globally right now, because the U S is under the five-year average, uh, Europe is well under their five-year average for natural gas storage, uh, kind of unclear on China. It's a little more opaque, uh, it seems like they're doing everything they can to get enough gas, but uh, I mean, you know, we'll see how that goes. But just kind of globally, we don't have as much gas in the ground as we normally do going into the winter. So if it's a bad winter, just significant problem there. Whereas oil, I, you can just kind of see the next, you know, year. There's, there's been no capex. Uh, we're we keep adding capacity, you know, taking out of OPEC's spare capacity, and that's just doing nothing just to to limit prices. I suspect spare capacity for OPEC isn't quite as strong as, as, as you're leading on because a lot of those baseline numbers were from either all-time highs or in some cases numbers that have never been reached. So I, that that just looks like a very tight market to me and I think it'll stay tight. Now, now some of the reasons why we're having less capex is this, there's this whole ESG drive everywhere, uh, particularly in Europe, but you know, really everywhere we've got Biden's agenda trying to get less 
carbon. Um, and there's a lot of people think the you got the sort of warmer planet story that's going forever. And, and I, you publish a really interesting piece that uh, I found it very intriguing and, and interesting on on different views of climate change potentially. Uh, do you want to outline any of that at a, at a very simple level and, and how uh, or, or what the thesis might be there? Sure. So at a at a very simple level, what I think could be happening, and obviously I'm not a meteorologist, so I have literally no expertise in this, so take it all with a grain of salt. But what I think could be happening is there's some some extrapolation in, in the scientific community because we have had significant warming, especially over the last 40 years. And what I think could be happening is they are extrapolating that last 40 years a little too much. I think there are some some natural climate cycles that do impact climate. Obviously, I, I do think uh, CO2 impacts climate. I think global warming has been a real phenomenon. Climate change is a real phenomenon. It's important. Uh, but, I, but I think on the margin, what we could have is some cooling based on uh, solar cycle activity, as well as some planetary alignment uh, activity. There, there, are, there are cycles going back you know, a, a long ways that correlate to temperature that involve uh, kind of like ocean cycles, so sea surface temperatures, as well as obviously some some solar uh, cycles and then even some planetary alignment cycles. And without going into a bunch of you know nerdy details and all that, a lot of those cycles are starting to overlap into what would be a would be a kind of a natural cooling phase that starts right about now. Uh, so if that were were to all play out and we get you know start getting some co cooler weather and, and longer winters, harsher winters, then you know our our current framework of of just kind of seeing nothing but more warming in the future, just kind of extrapolating that trend ahead would would lead to some significant uh, mismatches in the way we're we're doing energy policy and in the way weather could could end up shaking out. So that is, it's one of those things where you know that could easily be wrong, but if but if that's right, what that does to markets is is just very significant. So it's something that I think should be on people's radar. And it's the kind of thing where you know if you're if you watch the markets like everybody is betting on this climate change um more you know and so the, the, the that esg push is a big a big push to get less carbon and and on the thesis that the, the planet is warming and so like if 95 percent of the crowd is on one side and only five percent is on the other I mean, that is where i think where you get some really interesting setups um and exactly. what what do you think is the the most um Lever to that is that that's sort of some of this weather story, I guess, is what you said. Natural gas becomes one of the thesis points on that. Yeah, it, there's there's a lot that's levered to it. I think uh, natural gas is just kind of the really the easy button when it comes to what's most levered to that, especially because of the supply situation currently. It's just so bad. Uh, but there there are a lot of things that are that are levered to it. Coal is levered to it uh, for just electricity uh, consumption. And it, coal is very much tied at the hip to to natural gas. Uh, heating oil is something that is, is sort of a if you don't live in the, in the Northeast in the U.S., you probably don't even know what it is. But it, it's still used in a good bit of homes in the Northeast, and it's something that you know it's just it's it's just another refined product. But there's a liquid futures market for for heating oil. A lot of people still use it, and it's one of those things where we have had very little demand, uh, you know, in recent years because we haven't had a lot of cold winters. Where if you got a really cold winter I don't think anyone's ready for what what could happen to heating oil prices, and they trade very very tightly uh, to oil. It's basically just oil with a with a free option on a really cold winter at the end of the day, which 
you know, as a as a trader, that's kind of a, a perfect storm. And I and I know like your 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 average retail investor is not going to go out and buy heating oil futures. I get that, but there are other small things you know people could do, and they can look at you know companies that that, that sell snow plows or or salt for uh, you know road salt things like that. There's there's a lot of different avenues that are are highly levered to to this weather event possibly happening as soon as this winter. Very interesting. Lee Chen, I've been dominating questions. Do you want to jump in with, with some things on the China-specific angles to the story? Yes, absolutely, Chase. Um, and you were also, you know, early in pointing out, you know, China uh, could face, uh, particularly coal is, you know, 70% of China's electricity came from coal power. But I just asked, I just want to uh, ask a, a higher level. Um, what is China's um, energy import export or, or you know, generate the, the commodities uh, makeup. Uh, has they historically been uh, net importers? And wh what's your view from there? So it's, it's very interesting. Uh, it, it, this is kind of like a, a growth story, like, like a lot of things are with China, where, you know, you go back 20 or, or 30 years and they could, they could produce most of what they consumed energy-wise. Uh, and, and that was kind of across the board, whether it be nat gas, oil, coal, all of it. But as, as growth and population growth and urbanization all, all took off, uh, industrialization, they've, they've kind of had like a, a, a rapidly expanding gap between production and consumption where they've had to become a, a significant net importer. Um, the, the number doesn't seem that bad. It's about 15%, but that number has been rapidly growing. Whereas, you know, you look at the United States, it's kind of rapidly declining. U U.S. is about half that. Uh, although, you know, most of that's it owes itself to the shale boom. But... Uh, in China, the the only kind of energy input they've been able to at least be close to staying kind of self-sufficient in is coal. And for me, it's, it's, it's been one of the reasons that, and I wrote a, a big piece on coal uh, early in the year. I was very bullish on coal back in the March-April time frame. And one, one of the reasons was there's a lot of forecasting of, of China taking a lot of coal offline for climate purposes. And and to, to be fair, like, China's been more aggressive on on kind of the, their climate agenda than they get a lot of credit for. A lot of people poke fun at them for not really caring because of all the coal. In reality, they they they're they're even taking some uh, drastic measures that are hurting growth to try to limit emissions. Um, but when you look at coal, like you say, it's a significant portion of the grid, um, and it, it's like the one area we have self sufficiency. Which when I think of this from a strategic perspective. I, I, it's hard for me to imagine China wanting to let go of the one energy input they have that they they kind of control significant production levels of. So I would not bet on them backing away from coal quite as fast as as they would want to. And granted, you know, it, the whole world's all of a sudden grappling with this energy crisis and the fact that oh maybe we uh maybe we can't you know be as aggressive as we as we thought we could on getting rid of coal or gas or or oil or you know the emissions targets, you know, nu nuclear's kind of already starting to see the early innings of a renaissance because of all of this as well. But yeah, just to, just to kind of cast on that, it, at the end of the day, China has significant net imports of oil, natural gas, and lately they've had to like import a lot of coal as well. Yeah, and for our listeners, uh, I want to quickly point out that uh, I, I'm talking to a lot of companies on the ground. Um, indeed, um, you know, in the beginning, the energy efficiency um, kind of the the, the numbers each government, each level of government has to hit uh, was very strict. And I tweeted it out, it says, you know, this is going to depend on whether the top 
gets the message from you know from the bottom. And I think nowadays, you know, probably you know people's people's ideas of China, um, you know, it, some of it, it you know needs to be updated in the sense that the the message from bottom to the up, it's actually you know with the social media, it, sometimes it, it you know it works pretty fast now. So I think uh, you know after that you know after two weeks, the 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 national development and uh, commission. Uh, just you know, drastically uh, started telling every coal producer. You know, most of the uh, coal producers are state-owned. Uh, electricity producers are also state-owned. So they they were asked to start. You know, reg and and the, the actual Chinese word is regardless of cost. So essentially, it just says you know, forget about your profit. You know, if you electricity company, just do the electricity generation, even though the coal price is very high. And for the coal companies. Um, ramp up your you know production um so i think uh, in terms of the um energy in terms of electricity crisis probably a lot of articles here is is going to be over as unless the winter turns out to be very cold that's a different story but if it's a you know regular winter it's it may even over uh, estimate a little bit because when I talk to a lot of companies on the ground, at least the bigger companies, which usually get the preferential treatment from from the government, um, most of them uh, has this notice says you know be be sure to conserve energy, but they are still in production. Um, I want to follow up a little bit on nuclear. Uh, you know, in the power of China. It was never as controversial as in the U.S. Um, what, what do you see this uh, become a new, you know, new player in the next, you know, next years? Yeah. So, I, so something I've, I've been thinking that what happened with with nuclear is that it, we would have an energy crisis, and we would have especially a winter energy crisis, and that would be what what nuclear is really needed. It's just kind of a, a marketing win at the end of the day, a PR win. Uh, to me, it's per personally, it's it's kind of been an obvious, obvious like the best source of electricity that that, that there is. It's it's almost like a miracle that we found found uh, something in the ground that can make that much electricity, you know, that efficiently with that small of a of a of a footprint with no CO2 emissions. It it it's it's this the perfect source of electricity, and so to me, it was always a great idea that was waiting for a renaissance. Um, I think anyone that looks deeply into you know whether uh, the the storage of waste or it looks deeply into the safety record of of nuclear will will come away realizing that it's it's incredibly safe. Uh, so what what it really needed was marketing win, and, and a great way to way to get a marketing win is to have natural gas prices at two two hundred three hundred dollar barrel equivalent, oil going back to a hundred dollar barrel equivalent. You know windmills you know failing in China and and in the UK to to provide electricity when it's needed most or, or even you look at you know the, the Texas winter crisis uh, where renewables you know kind of weren't there when, when they were needed although granted so were some other sources um, so I think it's kind of the perfect storm hitting right now to to get nuclear back on track there's new technology with the small modular reactors that are kind of starting to take hold and become big they're being talked about you know in Europe and Japan in the US and China like th those those are going to Go mainstream before long, so I think I think we're genuinely in the first inning of a of a nuclear renaissance, and, and globally, not not just in, in certain regions. Um, another um, follow up on that because it's sort of sure. interesting. One of those places that has moved, like I mean, a lot of the energy stocks from their COVID lows are up like significantly. Like the natural gas stocks are can be up significantly. 
Um, and there, there is some strategies focused on uranium miners, uh, and I'm looking at the sort of March chart, it, and, it, and it's up, you know, basically six times from the March lows. Um, and so it's like the question, are you chasing it now, or is it still, and, and you use the words first inning, like is it, is it, is it still first inning, or, or how, how do you think about that? So yeah, the uranium miners themselves may be their second inning, but I think as an industry, nuclear is absolutely first inning. But when you look at the uranium miners, that that sector is doing well because uh, Sprott is is you know has a vehicle where they're kind of hoovering up all yeah. of these all of the Sprott uh, the spot market. So spot prices are going to just keep getting pushed higher, which is honestly a great service to the world because that's going to ensure we have enough uranium for this nuclear renaissance. Uh, so yeah, from that standpoint, the, I mean the miners have gotten expensive, but when you ask the question, are you chasing? My answer is yes. So, I per personally, as as a trader, I, I I think adding to winners is a very underrated uh, way to make money. A lot of people don't do that. They take the money off the table as soon as they have something go go right, and they add to things that are going bad. And personally, try try, try to add to winners. So, whenever uranium miners kind of started to break out, I kind of looked at, you know, personally what I had, and I was like, mm, I have a lot, but it's not enough. And I bought after the, you know, some of that breakout and. I just keep adding on, adding the weakness. So for me as an investor, I think you know we're, we're early days. If you look at the the price of uranium right now, it's still not enough. I mean, we're we're really maybe barely. No, I'll, no, I'll definitely say we are below the cost of production for most uranium mines globally, which means we still haven't done enough to incentivize the miners to get it out of the ground. So it it it, it we're we're definitely early innings even for uh, uranium itself. Good good background. Yeah, so another question, obviously, uh, is that uh, I think the crypto, because I think, uh, you know, there are many reasons China banned uh, crypto. Since U.S., you know, from what you seem to suggest, the U.S. is actually facing much less of an electricity, uh, you know, short shortage, even if the winter is coming. Um, do you do you see that, you know, crypto mining moving in, you know, moving in much more into the U.S.? Yeah, you know, it's really interesting that you mentioned that because that was sort of a leading indicator for me personally that China was going to have an energy crisis. And I, I kept writing about it, you know, before this really took off to let people know, like, hey, I think they, China may be banning crypto not because they think crypto is bad, but because it's sucking up a lot of electricity. And they, you know, you, you could you could look in the real time data of electricity usage in China was just exploding higher. And you, you could just kind of do some napkin math on how much coal was laying around and, and how much natural gas there was available and recognize like, ooh, this this could this could become a problem. And I, I was convinced, especially, you know, halfway through that, okay, like this is an energy problem, not a not really a crypto problem. And yeah, a lot of it's moving. I know the hash rate just passed uh, where where the US passed uh, China as far as uh, call it Bitcoin production. Um, and I, I think that keeps happening. Although I'm, I'm sure the regulatory bodies in the U.S. will will find some financial reasons maybe to to crack down a little bit more on, on crypto as we move forward, but you know, I whether it's that or electric vehicles, you know, becoming uh, kind of new problems for instability in the grid. Like that's that's something that we we're probably going to have to face. And I know, super interestingly, there are some crypto miners that are kind of setting up shop like in uh, like the Permian Basin to just take gas and produce electricity right on site to to run their mining mining operations uh, which is kind of a, a smart way to keep from flaring a bunch of natural gas the way we especially used to
Interesting. Uh, another sector, in, at least in China, which is getting a lot of talk is energy storage sector. So there are companies that, you know, try to specialize because, you know, the the difficulty when you have a huge variance, you know, like, you know, weather or, or in China, you know, the wind power didn't, you know, uh, didn't do as well in the north. So what do you see that sector of companies that specializing energy storage? So energy storage is, is I mean, it's the only way we're going to be able to like really get the grid off fossil fuels at any point is to be able to affordably store significant amounts of energy. And unless we have, you know, nuclear at 80% of the grid or something, then you have to be able to store. And it's, it's an area I keep, I keep a close eye on because I want to know what the developments are, but the signal to noise ratio in that space, I find to be difficult. Um, and I, I often tell the story, and I'll, I'll tell it to, to you guys and your listeners because I think it's important. And, and I worked at a, a, uh, a national lab for rocket research. I'm not a rocket scientist, but I, I just happened to work there. And a lot of times we would get pitches from rocket companies on some of their new technology. And it would be like, you know, a 30-slide pitch deck or something. And, and I'm just eating it up because I don't, I don't know the technical stuff. And by the end of it, I think this is a world-changing technology, and it's going to be phenomenal. And then after, after this meeting, you know, one of the, the grizzled old veteran rocket scientists would tell me why everything that was in the slide deck was completely wrong, and this technology would never get off the ground or work. And it was a really humbling experience because I could feel myself falling forward, all this tech, you know, all the technical speak. And then someone that actually knew the science was like, yeah, yeah, no, that's not going to work. And I kind of try to apply that to energy storage because everyone has a great, great idea out there. And you'll see a mainstream press article about this new company that's doing this new thing for energy storage. And it sounds incredible. But then I've seen those articles for the last 10 years and none of it has been commercialized at scale at all, especially affordably. I mean, I know we'll get there someday, but I also know I probably won't be the one to figure out the technical winner until it's too late. So I, I try to keep an eye on it more from a what's actually being commercialized standpoint than a what what might work standpoint, if that makes sense. Absolutely. Um, I, I think for a lot of our listeners, they may not be as tapped in, you know, in energy research as you are. Generally, like, how do you do energy re- research? Like, where do you generally go looking at data? You know, what, what, what countries do you pay special attention? Yeah, so as far as the research goes, I mean, so I have a Bloomberg terminal. I do a lot of research there, but honestly, you can get almost all the data uh, from, you know, publicly available sources. EIA has a lot of uh, great data, great visuals they put out. So it's it's a, a wonderful source to kind of dig through. And then when it comes to, you know, who I'm focusing on country-wise, it, it is the biggest producers, the biggest consumers, uh, paying attention to marginal changes uh, that are important. So, you know, LNG is becoming all of a sudden a really important part of the natural gas market. It's kind of, it's taking something that was a purely regional market and, and slowly making it a global market. So I try to keep up with with what LNG is doing in the gas space uh, very closely. Um, and then, yeah, when it, when it comes to countries, you know, you got, you got to focus on Russia, you got to focus on the Middle East, uh, the US, uh, as far as production goes. And then, Obviously, when it comes to consumption, China is just China, India are, are incredibly important. Uh, it, when when you look at supply and demand, especially for oil, the the thing I think a lot of people miss is is the demand side and where we could be headed. Almost all of the mainstream demand, you know, roadmaps I see peak out, you know, 105, 110 million barrels. Like 
forever. That's where they peak out at best. A lot of them, you know, two years ago, a lot of people were saying we'd, we'd be, you know, we'd, we already were about to peak and never go higher. What a lot of people miss is the kind of that wealth uh, S curve, just explosion in the middle class and, and especially places like Southeast Asia where you have literally millions of people gonna, that will enter the middle class in the next decade. And what that does for demand for energy is, is just unbelievable. South, a lot of Southeast Asia, you know, has 15% of people have air conditioning and it's, it's not cold there. So I guarantee a lot more than 15% of people want it. They just don't have it yet, but when they have enough money, they'll get it. And that's the significant electricity, you know, consumption device. A lot of people don't have cars and they want cars or they have a, a, a tiny car and they want a bigger car. So I, I think, I think the demand side is, is a very interesting area, especially for oil. Yeah, no, if I may, I will add my own personal story. When I grew up, my whole family have three bulbs with 100 watts of electricity. That's, you know, and it, it's not even constant. Then, you know, we bought our first refrigerator. We bought um, the first uh, shower, you know, heating shower, which actually is solar powered. So China has a, a lot of solar powered uh, heating water uh, thing. And then, you know, now air conditioning, uh, I, my, my hometown is in the south, so air conditioning. And then the last thing, you know, uh, my dad bought was uh, a, a heater, which is, you know, like you said, uh, p- people say you're in the south, you don't need a heater. But if you are rich enough, then for the two months that you don't like it, you're still going to buy for the heater. So, so you know, all these uh, is, you know, people here probably, you know, felt, you know, a, a typical Americans already have, a, you know, standards, like heating is already standards, right? But in, in the rest of the world, you mean China, um, I think even in, in the place I came from, very few family, my, 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 my dad was able to buy a heater, but very few family is at that curve, you know, because it's still so expensive. But when, when people get richer and then they can buy a heater even just for that two months. Yeah, I think I, I saw a projection where if if you kind of took the U.S.'s energy consumption per capita and just kind of copied and pasted that on the rest of the world, which obviously isn't, it's not going to go to that extreme anytime soon, but, but it, it would be something like seven, seven X of energy consumption globally. I mean, that is, which is just, and a scale is just kind of difficult to fathom, but it just shows you as, as, as living standards in, increase in the rest of the world, it outside of say North America or Western Europe or whatever, it's going to, there's going to be significant demand boosts to, to energy. I obviously will have energy efficiency gains that will help mute that. But, but at the end of the day, we're going to need a lot more energy. Um, I have one last question, uh, probably. Uh, you mentioned India. I think, uh, you know, India uh, has been a little bit, um, you know, in the shadow because, you know, every time China is constantly in the headline. Tell us a little bit, you know, your, your research in India. Yeah, it's a, it's a great point. It, India is incredibly important with energy markets, but all the focus goes to, to China and, and, and Europe lately. But I mean, India is having outages right now, mostly because of coal shortages. Uh, they sort of made the the actual decision to back away from some coal purchases because it was getting really expensive. They, they were essentially trying to wait and buy it lower, and it just kept going higher and higher. So they, they kind of got caught yeah, in, uh, that way. And, and interestingly, the off the coast of China, there was a lot of the Australian uh, imports that were just sitting there, and 
and India kind of finally said, hey, why don't we buy some of that? And they moved to buy some of that. And it was, I think it was the next day when, whenever the news broke that China was going to go ahead and offload a lot of the a lot of the ports that they were shipping. So, so e- even that source, it looks like that may be a, a, an issue for, for India to even be able to import there. So of, of coal uh, supplies in China and in India versus like their 10-year average, they're, they're both just at absolute lows. But they're the king about a, a massive scale uh, operation underway to increase uh, coal production in China and, and, and maybe some of their like close allies, direct, you know, kind of direct importers that are close by. And it, that I don't think a lot of people in the coal market understand yet just how big of a, just, I mean, just how massive we're talking of, of, of what is going to happen to production in China. It, it hopefully will, you know, have them ready for the winter a way that it, it sadly looks like will not happen for, for Europe and India. Well, we've talked a lot, Chase, about energy here. And as we wind down here in the conversation and, uh, you know, we, we sort of talked a lot about energy. Is it, can you want to tell our listeners a little bit about your approach to evaluating markets research and if they sign up for Pinecone Macro, what they will find uh, from your research services? Yeah, sure. So I, I, I think a lot of people probably have, who have kind of like read my stuff or listened to me or seen me on Twitter lately probably think I'm, it's more like, you know, Pinecone Energy Research because that's just kind of been my focus because that's where the opportunities have been. But yeah, I'm definitely a, definitely a macro analyst that I kind of tries, I'll go anywhere that where I, where I find opportunity and it's just, where opportunities have been, but yeah, so I do a lot of macro work as well. Whether whether that be just a little. What are the uh, areas? From, uh, doing you know FX and rates. What are the areas? What are the areas, uh, are the areas uh, aside from energy that you're paying attention? If you can, you know, share. Um, sure. Like it, uh, d- definitely, I so I fully admit most of it's been been in. And energy and, and even some of the areas I'm getting involved in now, they're they're directly related to energy. So I'm I'm extremely bullish on, on corn. And that's because of energy, because you're getting a lot of fertilizer production come offline because get get nat gas is so expensive. And that's gonna make fertilizer so expensive that I expect there to be a lot less corn planted, especially in the United States uh, in the in the next planting season. Uh, so it, there's a there's a lot of agriculture that I like. Uh, there are some there's I think I'm I mean, it, it again is related to energy, but I, I've been bullish on on Russian equities and uh, the Russian ruble. Uh, same same with Norway, the, whether it's currency or some of the equities tied to energy. But um, and a lot of that has to do with the dollar. So what happens with the dollar is really going to drive where I see opportunities. Call it over the next six months. It, if it can if it can keep from going higher, you can have some really good opportunities in places. I want to say like uh, Brazil, uh, because of their commodity exposure. Uh, there's going to be, I think, you know, some significant issues. Uh, so like from a short, short side in, in places like uh, Turkey, Pakistan, South Africa, that are places that are huge importers of commodities um, and have a lot of, you know, foreign exchange risk, even political risk when it comes to food inflation. Um, so yeah, I, I really do, you know, look at everything. Uh, there are opportunities I would normally be taking, like focusing on, you know, maybe shorting fixed income in the U.S. or something like that. But it, right now, just compared to some of these other opportunities, that that's just is barely on my radar. Some of the traditional macro stuff. Uh, and as far as as far as the work goes at Pinecone Macro Research, we have a 
we have a weekly letter and a monthly letter. That weekly one is very tactical and it kind of just looks at everything every week. It's almost like a, a, a dashboard, if you will. And the monthly, that, that is like a, a deep dive. That's where I'll do, you know, 40 pages just on coal or gas or something that's kind of catching my eye. Uh, one, one of the recent themes was was how well the, the U.S. economy is doing right now. And, and a lot of folks change, they, they have a big focus on a rate of change. So they'll see a, something falling in the last three months and really focus on that rate of change. And man, this is down, you know, 15%. Whereas if you look at just the pure levels of a lot of the data, it's, it's either the best in history or it's the best in, in the last 10 or 20 years. Um, so I, I did I did a piece focusing on that and and focusing on where I, you know the U.S. economy could, could be headed. Uh, that's that's a little bit differentiated, but from what a lot of other folks I think are kind of projecting. Where are we going to be headed? What can you speculate? <laughs> yeah. So 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 when it comes to the U.S. economy, I, I think they're kind of in a new regime for demand. I, I think. Yeah, household balance sheets are better than they've been in my whole life, and I'm 38 years old. Uh, whether that, that be, you know, debt to income ratios or net worth, that just just about you know, uh, interest, you know, servicing costs, all, all that is just uh, just much better than it's ever been, or, or better than it's been in the last 30, 40 years. Uh, you know, you look at capex. That's something that we didn't get in the last recovery after 08. Whereas now you have all these supply bottlenecks and and they're creating inflation. Well, the way out of that is to expand capacity. It's through investment. It's through capex. It's through more hiring. And I think you're starting to see the early innings of that, where uh, you're gonna you're gonna have you know look at capex intentions and a lot of the data, and it, it's it's surging. So I think you're gonna get a lot of capex. You're gonna get a lot of hiring, even though the labor market's tighter than we think already. Uh, you're going to see. I mean, we have a lot of inventories to restock. Inventory to sales ratios are at lows we haven't seen in decades. So there's a lot of growth, I think, baked into the cake in all of that. And if you can get that inflation down with all that investment, then you get a situation where you keep a lot of the growth, but you don't keep a lot of the inflation. You start getting wage gains that be kind of become, you know, it's kind of self-fulfilling. You can have significant productivity gains. That's something we saw during the pandemic and a little bit after that could keep happening. You can't get that without the CapEx. That's why we didn't get it after the 08 crisis. So... I, I really think you can have a new regime of, of that where demand, the de focus on demand too from the government kind of keeps demand higher than we're used to for the last decade. And we have a, a, a higher ceiling for growth, for inflation, for productivity. Um, uh, all, all those things just move higher, new regime of, of demand essentially. That's interesting because we also did an um, episode uh, with uh, uh, Marco uh, from, from um, another shop, and he was saying similar thing. And I, I kind of been saying the same thing as well in the sense that I feel U.S. and China relationship is not getting better, but both countries is doing so much investment. You know, in China, because they felt they need to have some kind of a reliance in technology, in energy. So there's significant investment going on in China. And in the U.S., I think, you know, people like, and just look at my own family, you know, my own uh, neighbors, you know, they're investing in their children, they're investing, you know, in the U.S. Uh, significant ways. So, you know, it could be a, a very uh, high growth for both countries, uh, even though the headlines are very negative. So Jeremy, that's yeah, the headlines all. Headlines are always negative, and there's always good news. <laughs> <laughs> all right, Chase. Well, thank you so much for joining us today on the China Tomorrow podcast. We appreciate you taking the time with us. Yeah, it's a great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you.